Hello, my friends. Today, we're talking to Klaus, Chief Innovation Officer at Teladoc Health. And we discuss the modernization of the healthcare ecosystem, how to healthily disrupt an industry, and why genuine stories impact our perspective in healthcare and beyond. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. How did you meet the people at Teladoc? It was one of those where they were looking for someone to come in and help think through how do you practically merge, you know, clinical science, technology science, logistics, because there's a lot of logistics, behavioral science and a good bit of data science to build the foundation for how do you drive a, a different kind of care model is really, really fascinating because healthcare has some century-old problems that haven't really ever been addressed, if you think about it. Right? As healthcare became more specialized, and we all want that. Look, I, I worked for Memorial Sloan Catering Cancer Center before this, and if I get cancer, that's where I'm going to go. But specialization also comes with fragmentation, by definition. Right? When you're specialized in one thing, usually can't be equally good at, at all the other things. So we've been on this road for a century of high degrees of specialization. We think about what that does to the people that need care is who's putting the pieces together? In a lot of cases, that's now us. And you can call that the village doctor's paradox. I want the village doctor to take care of me, but I also want access to specialized healthcare. And for about a century you have not been able to solve that Gordian knot because we just didn't have the tools, the technologies, the, the glue, if you will, to put the pieces back together. I do believe we do now. And if you look at what this we're trying to do, we're all on a journey to make healthcare better, I think there's a real good shot that three to five years from now, you're looking at a natively whole person care model that takes care of a lot of the gluing together for you and sort of handholds you throughout whatever wellness or disease needs that you have. Okay, so explain the glue again. Multiple kinds of glue, right? So one kind of glue is how do you make sure that if you meet two clinicians that they actually know which is other set? <laughs> Interesting problem, because right? they might not necessarily work for the same organization. They certainly don't have the same specialty, right? So, so you have an encounter with one. You'd say, okay, so EMR solved that, sort of, right? They capture some of the data, but but again, that doesn't transcend the boundaries on one healthcare institution. It doesn't give you the combination of data with whatever you have in, in your wearables, right, in your phones and whatnot. doesn't necessarily help you manage a chronic condition because if you're in a physician's office, chronic conditions happen in between, right? They don't just happen in the office. So, so chronic condition needs a different. Uh, if you think about mental health, that's anything from your consults with your psychologist or psychiatrist all the way through what are the tools that we give you to give you some amount of self-help in between. You can start thinking through what that looks like. Data glue, experience glue, uh, clinical insight glue, people glue. There's like myriad kinds of glue that you have to put in place. The difference is we can't go back to one person taking care of all your needs. That doesn't work because now you lost the sophistication in modern healthcare. Nobody wants that. But I want the same kind of experience of everything fitting together as if it was one person that took care of me. That's just a hard problem. Now, I have personal experience with this because there's a lot of doctors in my family. And so I know when you're talking about that, 
I know exactly what happens. They hand a file or they fax it or something. Then the doctor gets it and he goes, all right, here's my stack of people I have to read for tomorrow. And he just scans through it and then they get there and then they focus on like, okay, what's going on? Where's the fire? And then what tests have been run? And then they try to figure everything out. How do you help that process like specifically? So so in in a couple of different ways, right? The one way is we have a lot of stuff in-house. Uh, we actually have the ability to help you with acute episodic, let's say you have a fever and you just need someone to help you figure out why you have a fever. Or primary care, that's a little different. Right now it's a permanent relationship with a primary care physician. We've launched a primary care offering that we're having a, some really good experiences in terms of the people that use it. And that includes then integration into local infrastructure, like how do you get a lab done? Because you need your blood work done. You need to have your weight measured. You need to know what the blood pressure is. Otherwise, you don't actually have a primary care visit. So that was an integration problem we had to solve. In-house, we also have mental health. So disease-centered mental health that basically says that comes in in the package. Uh, You can start commingling the two. So so if you can build this right, then we become the one entity that coordinates different clinicians, but all operating under an integrated system solution kind of perspective, same as if you were an integrated health system, but now happening virtually. And then you can add chronic conditions where we don't just do coaching and visits. We also give you devices where appropriate, uh, whether that is a blood glucose meter or a blood pressure cuff, or it could be a weight scale. And, and we build it so that they are always on. That actually matters. If, if you're on and about, if your device isn't always on, that's great, right? But if that data point doesn't get to your care team in a real-time fashion, then that becomes a problem. You can imagine the following scenario, which actually happened. Right? If, you, if you have a, a relatively newly diagnosed diabetic that is driving down the highway and, and all of a sudden feels not so well, well, if you know anything about diabetes, it's probably because your blood sugar is off. So if you're in the middle of, of the highway somewhere, you don't know anyone, uh, you know, the, the nearest, whatever, house gas station is miles away. What do you do? That's potentially dangerous. What actually happened in this case is because our blood sugar measurement device is cellular enabled, we get the data point as soon as you measure your blood sugar. And we know that your blood sugar is low and we can reach out to you actively. And, and I think it begins to illustrate that if you can build ambient healthcare solutions, you can totally change the equation. So what does it mean that it's ambient? It means it's just present in the environment around you. You don't have to consciously think about it. When you need it, it's there. That's a very different experience from having to book an appointment three months in advance, and then maybe you remember what it is you want to talk about when you get three months hence. I'm not saying those aren't necessary, because they are. We're not trying to replace the existing care system. But there's a spectrum of capabilities you can put in place, which are more nascently just part of your life, ranging from how you manage a chronic condition all the way up through self-help, coaching, and, and then encounters when you need them. So I like this for a couple reasons. First of all, the ambient stuff, I heard, I'm hearing more of that. For one example, I was talking with Shri, the CTO of PayPal, and he explained to me the future of payments being ambient payments. He said, you know, when, when did you actually pay for your Uber? You never actually clicked the pay button. You ordered the Uber, you got into the Uber, the ride ended, and your card was charged. And I was like, that's fascinating. So I'm hearing more and more about this ambient stuff. The second thing that I think is fascinating is you're being disruptive. 
You're disruptive to, I mean, look, dude, the business model is standard. I'm a doctor. I hustle people in and out. I charge them and I can't sit there and focus and actually coach through one person. So it sounds like the way that you're setting this up is that you can be sort of the coach as they go on this journey. Um, and tell me if I'm wrong, because that's how I'm interpreting it. No, no I, I, you are on the money. What's important, though, is you can be disruptive in two different ways. You can be disruptive when you say the current system is totally messed up going to try to replace it. And my very first data point was that's a bad idea. Almost because always. now you're losing the, the capabilities of modern healthcare. The other way of being disruptive is to say, okay, I live within the existing system. I want to retain all the good things of the existing system, but I'm going to step up and try to put the pieces together in a more holistic fashion. I'm going to build partnerships with employers, with health plans, with health systems. I'm going to actually invest in the glue capabilities. We talked about some of them. And in addition to that, I'm going to make sure that there's a core set of capabilities we can deliver in an integrated fashion. You choose how many of them you want us to deliver to you. If you want to do everything delivered to us, that's a better experience. But if you want to work with other parts of the healthcare system, we will have the ability to integrate you in. You can think of it as last mile integration. I, I don't actually think the answer is virtual or bricks and mortar it's virtual and bricks and mortar and that's just not how people talk about the problem right i'd say 80 percent of the services are either virtual or brick and mortar and you're sort of combining the two we're very deliberately trying to create a care model that meaningfully integrates the two we will never be an, a brick and, and mortar kind of of company right? that's not what we do if, if you ask our ceo he would say that that's just not who we are we also don't want to go out and compete with the existing healthcare system but we do think we can supplement it we think we can amplify we can make the sum of the parts actually have greater value well, we the whole have greater value than the sum of the parts. I mean, it's that kind of game. So yes, that's disruptive, but not in the negative. I'm going to replace you fashion. It's more in the innovative. I can imagine a better future by working together differently. Yes, I meant it in the you're going to make a lot of money. <laughs> And the reason why I say that is because I'm a consumer, right? And that's one of the things you have in common with all the people that you interact with is everybody's a consumer of healthcare, right? And so when you said that, my first thought was, oh, that's great because, you know, most people don't have the luxury that I have of having doctors in the family and I can go to them and bounce stuff off them and they can send me to places and come back. And I thought you're sort of playing that role that my doctor family members play with me. Right. But usually people don't have that to the point where, you know, I would even try to like help some of my friends and like get my stepmom in a good mood and be like, Hey, can you just take a look at this case? And, yep. and, and so on. But it sounds like the quality of experience is going to be awesome for people because they'll feel heard right? And then they'll have direction on where to go. Now for you, what role are you playing in all of this? So the title is chief innovation officer. What does that tell you, right? Not a whole lot because you, different people have that title and different companies means different things. The traditional technology organization, aka the chief information officer rolls up to me. The CTO, which is all the product engineering rolls up to me. The chief product officer rolls up and then there's a team that does the clinical product design. Right? So, so if you look at my organization is really all about how you go from the vision of what you're trying to achieve all the way down through the steps to roadmap to planning to execution and ultimately have something you can deploy that becomes the foundation for a service. There are other parts of the company that are super important, like 
you know, member uh, engagement. Uh, there is clinical operations. So there's all kinds of other things. But, but the sort of fundamental combination of clinical and technology products uh, is what my team delivers, which keeps us busy. It is quite fascinating how much more you can do when you put all the pieces together instead of having some kind of weird delegation model where, you know, you go to your part and you go to your part. I mean, that's just the recipe for disaggregation. And what qualifies you to have this position? Well, that's an, what qualifies anyone to have any position. I mean, it usually comes down to a demonstrated ability to actually do that kind of thing. But what I just described to you is something that's relatively new in healthcare. I mean, there's not that many organizations that do that. I've been around healthcare a lot. I worked for a health insurance company, worked for a payer, worked for CVS, that means retail pharmacies. So, so you know what that looks like. I work for an academic medical center. That's very different. So I've seen lots of parts of healthcare. I believe I understand the moving parts. I have physicians in my family as well, by the way. So I have a, my own sort of backing group that tells me what it's like to be a, a physician. Uh, I think more than anything else, it comes down to two things. I think I have a knack for asking good questions. And I also have a knack for receiving lots of bits and pieces of stuff and trying to synthesize what all the parts could look like. Not necessarily must, but could look like together. And if you think about what we just talked about, those are two good qualities to have. If you can ask good questions and if you can create some kind of meaning out of lots of moving parts, it's not a bad start. And, and then we will continue to iterate based on what's the right experience and what's the right value. And we'll get to places. Well said. You took something that I've felt and have said and stumbled around a lot and said it in a very succinct way. What was your first job as an individual contributor? What were you doing? My first job a long, long time ago. My first job was all the way back when I was in, um, of all things, high school. So my uncle knew this guy who owned a, a transportation company. So he owned like 200 trucks right? and a whole bunch of, of truck drivers. And he was shipping stuff around Denmark, which is where I lived at the time. And it was early days of technology as, as we know it might think PCs right? this was this was back in the you know mid 80s and all of a sudden out of the blue I get a call from from this gentleman that I don't know who owns a transportation company and he said he talked to my uncle and he's someone who knew computers well you're talking to someone who was at that point in time in the ninth grade so, so it's like I get this guy who owns a transportation company call me out of the blue he said do you know computers I was like mm, I guess so I, I know a little bit of, of home programming uh, so what he wanted me to do was he wanted me to write a piece of software that could calculate the result of a pigeon race. He was racing pigeons, and he had gotten very tired of the manual calculation of the geospatial computation as to how fast these pigeons flew. <laughs> so my very first individual contributor job was I got paid in the ninth grade to write software for a gentleman who wanted to calculate the result of a pigeon race. And then I cornered the pigeon racing market in Denmark. There were five pigeon racing clubs. <laughs> I sold the software <laughs> to all of them. So that was it. I, I cornered the market, sold, sold it five times. Pretty cool. For a ninth grader. I want to clarify. Racing like pigeons. Yes. You, you, okay. you have homing pigeons, right? So, so you basically, you try to breed pigeons that can fly very fast and are very good at finding their roost. The way you do that is you pair up a pigeon with a male and a female and they want to go back, right? So yeah. you get them attached to the roost. You take the pigeon, put it in a cage, Put in a truck. That's where the gentleman who owned the truck, the, the transportation company comes in, his trucks, right? So you put all the pigeons in all the cages from the entire city in a truck. You drive the truck a couple hundred miles away. 
You let go of all the pigeons, and then you tried to calculate which pigeon flew the fastest home to the roost. Is this still happening today? Yeah, oh, yes. People still raise pigeons. I wonder if the ninth graders of the day are like taking video and doing machine learning on the video. <laughs> but but it, it was a truly odd first job to have, but that was my first job. And then what was your first, what would you say, like real adult job? The first adult job was actually at college where I found that that I had... I would have sworn I did not have a love of teaching. I mean, both of my parents are high school teachers, and that was absolutely not what I was going to do. But what often happens is you got an, an assistant teacher job of some sort right, when you go to college. Uh, and I actually did teaching for, for a long time. So that was like a college job. I don't know whether that counts as an adult job. What happened after that was I got a software engineering job for a bank. I got to work for the largest bank of the country. So if you want to say full-time, like real adult job, that was the first one. So that was in the beginning of 1995. When did you realize that you were good at coaching people? It took a long time because it's kind of thing where, you know, unless you have a level of self-confidence that most of us are not born with, it's not necessarily something that you would you would sort of expect of yourself. And especially, and I've seen that in, in a lot of people I work with over the years, when you have a highly technical, even technological background, they don't really teach you a whole lot of that stuff when you go to engineering school, as they didn't when, when I went to engineering school. So it was after a couple of jobs. I mean, I, I got into being the go-to person for the bank that I worked for. And, and at one point they said, hey, we need a favor, Klaus. So need you to be our new chief acting and say, what's that? We have no idea, but that's not your job. <laughs> uh, it, it, that was in 2000 at the time. Chief architect was not a thing, right? That was just relatively new. And that was in the, in the two years after that was when I realized that, yeah, I'm actually good at the people part. Right? Because when you're trying to stand up a function that literally doesn't exist, nobody knows what it looks like. And you're going to have to not just teach people what it is, how to do it, but also the rest of the organization, why it matters, because you can stand up the best active function in the universe. If people don't want it, then it's not going to have any effect. So, so in those two to three years, between 2000 to 2003, 2004, that was probably the time in my career when I realized that the people part is important and I learned how to do it well. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with you. The designing process is out of nothing. As an entrepreneur, that's one of the hardest parts. Totally is. Yes. What are you looking for for like when you're recruiting members of your team? What sort of traits are you looking for? Great question. Personally, I look for curiosity uh, and affinity for learning. I mean, yes, you do go look for your typical skills and is this a job you've done before? That's what your resume is. I mean, if your resume has the right texture, you know the person can do the job. So we're looking for uh, the other kinds of traits. How do you choose to show up as an individual? How do you communicate? What are your dreams? What are your visions? What do you aspire to? One of the questions I always ask is, what makes you happy at work? What do you actually like to do? Which is not necessarily a textbook question to ask, but it tells you a lot about someone. If you can get them to actually tell you what matters to them when they go to work, you learn a lot about someone. Uh, the last question I always ask so what question have I not asked you yet, but I should have? <laughs> and the reason I ask that question is because that tells you something about, are they able to think out of the box? Right? It, it, literally, I'm turning the tables on them and say, if you were me, what question would you have asked? And it's fascinating how people react to that. 
oh, I love it. We're going to become best friends. That's one of my favorite questions. And the interesting thing about that question, tell me if you've experienced this, a certain percentage of the time people will tell you the worst thing about them by telling you to ask them about it. Like you didn't ask me about it. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and then you got some percentages where they're just totally stumped mm-hmm. and end up saying, I don't know. But that also tells you something about that person. So it's fascinating when you come up. That's cool. Who, As you were going through this and you worked many different places in a variety of fields, which helped prepare you for, for what you're doing now. But as you went on that journey, was there like one mentor type person or a person that you learned from that really stood out to you? I was one person that I had as a mentor when I worked for IBM. Uh, that was sort of the interlude. Like after I moved from Denmark to the U.S., I, sp- I spent seven years with IBM. So you get to see a lot of large organizations when you work for IBM and start traveling and meeting with clients. It's such a really, really good learning experience. But I'd never had a mentor. It, it's not a thing in Danish sort of work culture, having mentors. So I'd never had a mentor. I joined IBM, I was just expected. So, so you know, how do you find one? That was the first problem. But I found a couple of... In fact, two of the fellows were kind enough. With your fellow, you're you're something right? at IBM. You've been around for a long time, and you you're very accomplished. So a couple of the fellows sort of agreed to mentor me, and I tried to get them to tell me, "How do you succeed at IBM?" I'm like I just moved from Denmark. What do I know? I, I'm I'm in the U.S. This is a new company, so I just want to do well. And both of them wouldn't answer the question. One of them ended up giving me probably the best advice that I've ever gotten in my career. Uh, and I still remember it. What he said was, Cloud, you can be good at many things, but you will only ever be great at the things you love to do. Find the things you love to do, you'll do well. It's wonderful advice. What are the things that you love to do? We talked a little bit about it. Uh, I, I love to create holistic value out of a bag of bits right? that weren't necessarily meant to come together, but I can see how you can fit the pieces together and create something that's really meaningful. It matters to me that I leave behind a better team. That's the coach, that's teacher aspect of, of my persona. Uh, it matters that I leave to, behind a better institution, a company. It, 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 if I don't feel like I can have a meaningful, positive impact on the place I work, not just the team, probably not for me, it matters in the end that it has an impact on the world around us. There's a reason I'm in healthcare. Uh, because, you know, same as you, I have a lot of experience with healthcare and I believe it can be better. So I love to do those things. Uh, and then the last thing is what I've found over the years is I love storytelling. Mm. I didn't actually know that was in me until relatively late in my career. And, you know, same as many engineering-based kind of personas, I grew up a little more shy right, than, than you will meet me today. But I found a love in telling stories that matter right, to my own team, to the people we're trying to help, and to the world in general. Have you ever come across Robert McKee? heard of but not yeah he's written several books on the concept of storytelling he's a big movie writer tv show writer but i read one of them and it blew me away they discussed the different principles and story arcs and all of that and then you can be intentional about okay if i want to tell a succinct story to get people to understand how i arrived at a point this is how you do it stories resonate with us as humans. Uh, it is almost wired, if you look at history and biological evolution, right? the, the notion of storytelling is a very old tradition. And there's various research out there. Don't ask me how they came up with the number, right? The research says a story that resonates impacts you 22 times more powerfully than any number of facts. 
Yeah. My initial response to that is like, I have no problem believing that because when a story impacts you, it actually stirs your emotion and facts rarely do that. And when they do, the fact that you're consuming the fact, usually on text and not in story form, right? It's usually a bullet point. Even if it does stir you, like it's a disturbing fact or statistic, it doesn't have the same resonance and and duration of feeling as when someone tells you this story that you're interested in listening to and then it ends in some big point. And that that was very eloquently put. And what's fascinating about healthcare is that if we can find a way to tell stories about their lives, Mm. you can totally change the equation on how people engage in their own care. And I'll give you a very simple example. And this is a a true story. I, I had the privilege of listening in to this particular conversation uh, with consent, but I had the privilege of listening to the particular conversation. It was between a male roughly my age at the time. I was younger. Uh, this is years ago. So mid-50s. And he was having a conversation with a clinical nurse. They knew each other. They had had conversations before. And, you know, the nurse tries to explain to him, you're not on a good track. You know, you, your data is all over the map. You know, this is just not going the way it's supposed to. And it was like throwing water on a goose. It was like, yeah, yeah, no, I know. You know, we talked about it, and you know how that goes. Right? It's like in, in one ear, and it goes out the other ear. And then started talking about his life and what he was looking forward to. It turns out his daughter had just gotten engaged, and they were he was going to get married a couple of years from now. He was very much looking forward to that. And then the nurse, who was an experienced nurse, gently turned the table on and pretty much delivered the following message: I just want to let you know that in the current course, you are not going to walk your daughter down the aisle. Now it's about something he wanted, not what the science said he should do. It's the, it's the difference between the contextualization of what are my objectives for life, so I will choose to do these things versus my doctor tells me I should. Yeah, people change when they have to, right? Absolutely. For me, it was having kids. So I, my oldest is five years old, a three-and-a-half-year-old, and a, a two-week-old. But before my first child, my daughter, I mean, like, I barely ever went to the doctor. I never got screened for anything. I didn't care. Like I just was, you know, really focused on business and trying to build something and really enjoyed technology. And I was just really, really, really focused on me. Right. And then I have this kid and I'm like, oh my goodness, I need life insurance. I need health insurance (laughs) because I was just playing it by ear. I was relatively healthy, but I needed to like work out. And so I prioritized all of these things that I wasn't normally focused on. I was normally focused just on on work and growing and things like that and, and learning and things like that. But I really prioritized my physical health because of exactly that. I want the first driver for me wasn't the wedding. The first driver for me was I want to live long enough so that they don't forget me if I die. That's a good start. Yeah. And so I was like, all right, well, that that for me... Whatever that was, that was the emotional hook that I could grab onto and and use to push myself forward. And if you think about where we started the conversation, the the notion that healthcare is sort of compartmentalized and and there's no yellow brick road that that ties the pieces together, it's not just how you put together solutions. It's how you attach to the emotional desires of the people you're trying to help. How do you make it meaningful to the individual? Healthcare is super personal. But because it's about me and, and my journey of, of health or disease, it's actually also personal on the provider side. We don't talk as much about the providers. We talk a lot about the, the patients, the members, the health consumers. 
But a lot of providers are really frustrated because all they want to do is help people. And what they see is a fragmented environment that doesn't really make sense to them. Can I just get a holistic picture of the whole person? I want to help this person, but I can't help as much as I would like to without understanding the bigger picture. So I think it's all around, not just on the consumer side, but also on the provider side, that there is a deep-rooted desire for more connective tissue and for more holistic view. Everyone I talk to, I mean, it's the recurring conversation every Thanksgiving with my my brother and my stepmom. We all sit around and they say, okay, you're talking to all these people in technology. They're in healthcare. We, we talk about all the different advancements that we've experienced or seen. And then inevitably the topic of the EMR healthcare systems, right? Is that what they're called? The, the EMR electronic medical records. Yes. Why aren't they combined? And do you think they ever will be? Or do you think some newer thing will come along that, that will surpass that? I think the real nature of the problem is multifaceted. There is one aspect that will integrate EMRs can address. Now, they have to be separate and disparate in, in disparate institutions for regulatory and for privacy reasons. Right? So you can't just throw it all together. Uh, but interoperability is improving. Uh, having said that, there is a semantic overlay to the, to the medical record, which you won't be able to just magically interoperate. The semantic overlay is the clinical interpretation of what's going on represented by the physician's or the nurse's note. That note is one of the most valuable components of the entire record. And they will never be interchangeable just like that using syntactical standards. So our ability to use sophisticated technology to understand the semantics, the tenor, and try to extract something that's meaningful from it is another piece of the equation. And then you can add to that the data that you can't capture in an encounter-based record like the wearables, the chronic condition management monitoring, all these other things that represent meaningful data sets. And you can add to that, if we ever get to truly ambient technology, I think we will, you're talking smart home environments. So there's lots of data points that comes from that. I absolutely think all these pieces are addressable, but they're not addressable to a unilateral, let's just build a single EMI and have a standard for that. That will not solve enough of the problem to make the clinicians or the health consumers happy. Will it get solved? Yes. But it will get solved to a much broader set of solutions than people imagine. So when someone comes into the practice, one day they'll be able to open up some magical screen or system that has notes with some insights about the combination of notes, maybe through AI or, or something like that? Yes, but. This was a but, not an end. It has to be a synthesis of the information. Because if you think about the nature of the encounter, you can't shift the focus from the patient to I need to internalize you know, pages and pages and pages and pages of stuff. Right? So the foundation needs to be there. You need to be able to drill down into details should you so desire. But something needs to generate a synthesis of the information that is the most meaningful pieces of information that are relevant for the dialogue like between the nurse and this person we talked about. It is the conversation that matters. So you have to empower both the patient and the provider to have a meaningful conversation by giving them just enough information in context. And that's the second or third order problem compared to just putting the data together. Are other systems, hospital systems, collections of doctors, are they coming to you to look at how you've structured this within your practice? 
they're coming to us from the perspective, you know, saying, what can you do to enable mind providers? Uh, if, if you look at a portion of what we do is we actually enable providers from hospitals and health systems. Uh, and we do it in a couple of different ways. We do it by, you know, software technology that helps you do some of these kinds of things, uh, be that, you know, execute on a virtual visit that's somewhere integrated into your environment, be that exchange information between your EMR and, and, and our platforms. We also build hardware devices that will help you connect to a patient room in an inpatient setting. So, so why is that important? Because we increasingly live in an environment where you can't necessarily assume that you can magically physically move the physician or the nurse into the physical setting. Right? It's getting more diverse. It's a hybrid care model. We have solutions. Telestroke is an example where you get a stroke. There's actual drugs that you can get. That means you will recover very well. They're very expensive and they're not healthy for you if you're not suffering a stroke. So you have like an hour, hour and a half to decide, is this individual suffering from a stroke? If you've never seen a stroke before, you don't even know where to begin. But if you could beam in a stroke specialist with enough high-grade audio and video for that person to actually meaningfully assess whether this is a stroke victim or not, you just totally change the game. Right? So we also built, call them robots, that have high-grade audio and video capabilities that allow a remote physician to perform a pretty advanced level of examination. You can't have hands-on, right? but, but you can have a in-the-room clinician that's with the patient that can do whatever needs to be hands-on. But you can do a lot through audio and video cues if you think about it. That's pretty interesting, specifically the fact that you can bring it into the patient room because there are those rooms at the hospitals where they can go in and do that consultation with other physicians. I just, like I said, I have a, a son who's, Two, two weeks old. And so he had a, a specific medical problem and the doctors went away into the room and like talked about it with this other physician that was at a larger hospital, you know, nearby that they piped in that knew specifically about those types of things, specialists. And then they came back and then they sort of told us about it. The idea that that could have all happened in the room while we were sitting there is just amazing. And what it takes is a self-driving robot that you can basically move around. It's actually even remote controllable by the remote, by, by the remote physician. So, so the remote physician can control it. So that's, that's one possible solution. Or you put smaller devices into every single patient room uh, and you just enable them in that way. They do slightly different things. I mean, obviously, if you have a larger robot, you can get higher grade audio and video, but you can still meaningfully project your presence into a patient room at a smaller scale by something you can install in every room. If you can create like a set-top box kind of version of remote presence, mm -hmm. that's a meaningful delivery capability for a hospital. Yeah, like doctor robots walking around, just doing their whole futuristic thing with bipedal robots walking around, taking care of you. <laughs> yeah, it's a little, little just bit throwing more vitamins at, at your mouth. <laughs> I mean, those kinds of solutions, I don't know whether I want robot to throw vitamins at my mouth, but those kinds of solutions actually also address, you know, care access and health equity, both from a national perspective, because you can all of a sudden project a different level of skill meaningfully right, into a local setting, but also, for that matter, internationally. I mean, we have deployed solutions to Africa, to our not-for-profit, uh, where, where we basically deploy solutions into sub-Saharan Africa uh, when there was a overwhelming crisis uh, around the Kondoma pandemic in, in India, a again, we can ship equipment that will help you 
create more elasticity in your ability to deploy meaningfully healthcare resources into local environments that don't have enough. That's actually, I think, one of the ways in which we can meaningfully contribute, not just to an institution, but, but that's a worldwide problem. So it's fascinating to work for, for a company that has a richness of capabilities that serve members, aka health consumers, providers, ours, and third party, that serve the employers in terms of we actually partner with them around certain employee populations and, and we stand up programs that meaningfully help the population. And then, of course, the health plans, because we also sell our services to the big health insurance companies. So, so it's literally where I started, which is we try to provide the connected tissue that makes it meaningful for everybody and makes the whole great ensemble parts. One of our team members, after learning about you, used your service and had great things to say about it. So it was uh, Chloe, she came back and she's like, hey, I actually used Teladoc this weekend or, or something of that nature. And I was like, well, how was it? <laughs> <laughs> you want to know how, how good or bad we are, but that's yeah. Different. No, she said it was fantastic. She said it was good. really interesting. Last year, I spent ten months traveling around the United States in an RV with my kids. You know, from the pandemic, so we like sold our house, bought an RV, went on that sort of you know uh, mission adventure. And one of the things that was difficult was getting care because you know you got your doctors down in Florida where we were from, and. Luckily, the COVID restrictions were happening, but then the COVID restrictions, like the, the benefits they got from COVID, the freedom they got from COVID expired, right? And so then we got, I got like dropped, like as a patient, they say, okay, you know, we're going to drop you. You've got 90 days to find someone else. And I'm sitting here like, I'm in a different city every two or three weeks. How am I going to do this? It's hard. And I think in some ways, we're still catching up to what is not possible. The world expanded a lot over the last two years. I believe, we believe it will continue to expand. There is a new care model coming, but we sort of have to catch up with all of the thought models that fit quite well in what has happened for the last century or so, which, which has been the increased specialization and the focus of brick and mortar. A hybrid care model is just different. And as you called out, the mobility that many of us will have uh, if we don't have it already, actually changes in a very material fashion what our needs are. I always like to do some sort of call to action. So what do you use as a call to action? Is it like an emergency thing or if people need a new primary care physician, what's the thing that you would say to call Teladoc? Why would I call Teladoc? If you have a desire to both have a partnership with one place, one institution, right, one organization around your care journey as a whole. Uh, but at the same time, you realize that your needs will change over time. You need access to specialists from time to time. Uh, if you want to marry those two kinds of things, uh, and I'm now talking about the holistic whole person care model, we are a really good destination. In the smaller end of the spectrum, I would say if you get a fever and you have access to us and you just want to get someone to have a conversation with you within five, 10, 15 minutes, again, we're really good place to go. Or if you have a chronic condition where you feel that you could use more coaching or maybe a program that's clinically driven and centered around it, again, you should reach out to us. What makes us unique is that we bring the combination of clinical science, technology science, logistics to operate at national scale. 
uh, and behavioral science to help you figure out what your needs are. And we bring that together in a package. And we tend to think of health tech as being one thing and clinical services as being a different thing, but that's a symptom of the disaggregation of healthcare that doesn't actually necessarily help you as a human being. So if you want someone to help you put the pieces together better, you should call us. And then how do they call you? Or is it a phone call? Is it an app? Is it a website? There is a website. There is an app. There's a phone line you can call. So in your all of the above, I would say in a modern age, you know, go to the app store, get our app, right? or go to our website and register. Obviously, there's two models of engaging. Uh, we have 90 million people in the U.S. that have access to one or more of our services. The way they got that was because their health plan or their employer contracted one or more of our services. There are other things we can offer you on, on a direct basis but if you want to use more of our services. But the starting point is almost always you many, many, many people have access to one or more of our services to either their employer or their health plan. And all you have to do is to go check, uh, you know, in your benefits package when you have access. And which we do, you can go register digitally and you'll be up and running. This is awesome. We made a podcast, class. How do you feel? I feel good about the podcast. Dude, it was amazing. You're a fantastic speaker. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.